Hello and welcome to another edition of Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. Please remember these podcasts are really easy to find, so please tell your friends they can listen on the Financial Mail digital platform and on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms as well. As the election next year comes ever closer, you can sense the country's politics becoming sharper. Um, it can be scary for us ordinary folk, but it turns out the politicians quite like it that way. You know, what do they say about wrestling with a pig in the mud? Pig likes it. They thrive on the conflict. And I guess the thing you have to learn is not to be scared, or perhaps put another way, when to be scared. The next election is going to be much closer than ever before, certainly in our democratic era. Maybe not as close as the Springboks' last two games in France, but close enough probably to change the game here. New polls show that if the election were held today, the ruling ANC would be well below 50% of the vote and well below half the seats in Parliament. And the question then becomes how or not if the ANC stays in government. I know people in the Democratic Alliance might disagree, but while DA leader John Steenhazen's moonshot pact is coming along nicely, it isn't yet touching the 40% mark yet, and none of the, even the bleakest polls have the ANC falling below 40%, at least not yet. The ANC, or at least a part of it, has a fallback in the EFF, which some recent polls show is growing, certainly uh, in Gauteng and in the Western Cape. I still think that's an unlikely alliance, certainly at a national level. Um, the ANC-EFF coalitions uh, in local government uh, are not that happy. But politics is the art of the possible. And in a close-fought province next year, like Gauteng, with ANC and the Moonshot Pact are neck and neck today, according to one poll, the EFF may be a game-changer. There is, though, another potential game-changer in the works. Raisa Mzazi is a new party founded by a former colleague of mine and a former editor of Business Day. So, Songeza, welcome back to the podcast. I have to say it was a little strange seeing you on a platform facing a very large, cheering crowd, clapping with your hands above your head. You really crossed the Rubicon. You've become a politician. <laughs> Why was that Congress it's necessary and what did it achieve? It felt very strange for, for me too, Peter. Uh, I still have to get used to people singing my name, uh, which is what happened quite a lot uh, at the Congress. And and people generally fussing when they see me because I'm I'm used to just being myself and so on. But yeah. the convention was really important and for us to put it together in the way that we did because we wanted to respond to the kind of politics people said they wanted and then see if they respond with the kind of enthusiasm that we thought they would respond it with. And, and they did. The, the song was amazing. The discussions were serious. The audience was really diverse, or the participants were really diverse in terms of race and age and income and, and so on. And, and in many ways, it felt like the, the, the struggle days of old or the early days of democracy, just in terms of the mood uh, that, we, that we managed to create. What do you just talk a little bit about that mood? Do you think the country's in a mood to do something different? The country is in a mood to do something different, but there is a there's a significant obstacle uh, in the way, and that is trust in the political processes, trust in politicians. And one of the things when we set out Rise Mzanzi, we sought deliberately to do was to avoid 
getting too many people that splintered on the basis of unhappiness from other political parties, because that sort of thing really annoys voters and it turns them off. So we managed to avoid that. But the second is counterintuitive, which is you don't need to trust us. You you need to trust yourself. You need to trust your own agency and the extent to which you want to change your life. And people are responding in significant numbers. You you sort of played um, under the radar a little. Um, uh, you've you, you've very recently become a political party. Um, when when do you actually begin to show up on the screen? I was interested in some of the um, the polls. There was a poll out last week from the Brenthurst Foundation, which makes yeah. some references to you, but doesn't include you in its actual polling. And the time at which it was concluded. Uh, firstly, and secondly, the number of organizers and volunteers uh, and supporters we had on the ground at the time. There is a certain formula that we're using, um, which tells us how many votes, a higher degree of accuracy than any poll that you would, that you would do. Oh. And in terms of our own plotted development path, uh, it was fairly spot on. If they were to run the same poll today, it would give yeah. them a different number. In three weeks' time, it would give them another different number. And yeah. that's that's how exactly how, how we've planned it. And so, so if they ran the poll today, let's see, the poll as they ran, which I think they did their research in September and early October, um, uh, it came up with uh, the ANC. So, so the question is, thinking ahead to the next general election, which party will you vote for? And the answers were, 41% ANC, 36% multi-party charter. This is the thing of uh, John C. And 41 ANC, 23 DA, which is not much movement at all for the DA. A big jump was set to 17 from about 10% for the EFF. IFP, mm-hmm. 7%. Action South Africa, uh, Action SA gets 3. Free Freedom Front Plus gets 2. What would your number look like in that poll if it were, if it were rerun now? So I'll give a different number, Peter. So at the time that they did the poll, we were onboarding supporters at a rate of about uh, of about eight thousand a week. We're hoping to stabilize it between thirty-five and forty thousand a week. Uh, people so, that we onboard. All right, so so just put that in a number that an idiot like me can understand. I mean, what does that what does that do in electoral so, terms? What is, so if we were to use, let's say, 20,000 people a week uh, that we are onboarding, uh, and, mm. and let me explain what onboarding is. So these yeah. are people that we have spoken to. They haven't simply attended a meeting. You yeah. speak to people. We tell them what we are about, and we ask them whether they want to be part of Rise Mzanzi and part of the journey and will vote and try and convince other people to vote. Those are support. We call them supporters. So that's what yeah. we're talking about. That gives you a base of voters that you can rely on for the election. And that excludes the people that uh, would vote for us because they saw something on TV and and that sort of thing. And if we were to use the rate uh, of, say, 18 to 20,000 a week, then we'd be looking at about 850,000 votes in next year's election. If we did not grow any faster and we we, we kept it at that, that would give us about 850,000 votes. But we're confident that the closer we get to the election and we increase our advertising and we're deploying about 250,000 posters nationwide for registration weekend, um, that number is going to grow. 
So, so let's say it grows to beyond a million. Let's say it gets, you get to 1.2. What percentage of the vote does that give you? I'm trying to do the calculation. It's about 6 or 7%, isn't it? Yeah, it gives us between 6 and 8%, depending on turnout, uh, Peter. Yeah. Yeah. Which then, in terms of opening uh, the, the route to, towards a new coalition government, suddenly looks possible. Yeah. Well, let's come to that. I mean, the the um, in the in the poll, by the way, the, the numbers that I read out earlier. Once again, ANC forty one, DA twenty three, EFF seventeen, IFP seven, Action South Africa three. Do any of those numbers surprise you? No, they don't, not at, the, at this point before an election. I mean, I think a more accurate poll is usually like 70 or 80 days before an election. Then then okay. we're talking because all minds are focused. So it doesn't surprise me. What yeah. is fairly surprising for me is the DA number. Um, and I would be interested in knowing, uh, you know, how the poll was done. I'm assuming it was by telephone and yeah. it was largely urban areas. So the ANC and DA number can get skewed as a result of some of those dynamics. Yeah. Well, talk to us about where your people are coming from. I mean, the the you know, you have a root background. We're both from Transkei, not very far apart from each other. We grew up. Um, what? Where's, where's your where's your base? Where's where's where are your people? Where are your 20,000 people a week coming from? The, the first is who, Peter? And uh, to be straight up with it, it's, it's ANC supporters or people who would otherwise support the ANC. That's okay. the long and the short of it, whether they are in urban or rural areas. We just have a particular advantage over many other uh, opposition parties in the rural vote, uh, both in the Eastern Cape and elsewhere, because a lot of our organizers and some of the organizations that we work with have a very strong rural base, obviously, relationships with traditional leaders, uh, people in the church, uh, the disabled community, and so on, who have very deep contacts into rural areas and also peri-urban areas in provinces like uh, KwaZulu-Natal, Bomalanga, and Lipopo. Gauteng remain big. It's by far our our biggest province so so far. And 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 you and so the the if you if you aiming directly at ANC supporters, uh, that puts you sort of you're doing it from one end of the political spectrum, and the EFF is doing exactly the same thing from another. How does the has uh, the ANC responded? Do you get any? Do they ever call you up and? Ask you for a round for coffee and you know a little chat. Yeah, the interesting thing, by the way, I mean, I had a a, a breakfast with a minister I won't name because it was a, a chance meeting, and he said that if he was younger and not so invested in the ANC for so many years, he would join us. And we get that a lot uh, from people who support the ANC generally. They like the fact that we don't position ourselves as an opposition political party, but an alternative, which is, I cannot overemphasize to listeners, Peter, how important that positioning is. Because Tell me why. You take, because you take people, you, you don't sound like the DA. Hmm. Uh, to, be, to be honest, you don't sound like the DA, uh, that, you know, people say it spends 50% of its airtime talking about the ANC, and people know the ANC is bad. They're asking a different question, which is, so what are we going to do about it? 
that's what people want to know. And so we mm. generally avoid talking about the ANC or other political parties at all. Uh, in fact, we hardly ever do in our meetings. And people don't bring either of the parties up. It's interesting because because the the I, I know, and you can talk a little bit about that, I hope. Um you've been approached by the um by John Steenhaus and um, probably other members of the multi party charter, the Moonshot Pact. And you've you know they've tried to invite you to join their pact, and you've uh, you've kept yourself distant. You've said no so far, and I wonder whether you could explain why. Yes, but it's it's it, I mean the reasons are really simple, and uh, I found that even when I explained them to to people who previously uh, kind of thought we're not making the right decision, they understand there are two reasons in particular, Peter. The, the first is that if you aiming for for ANC supporters, you really can't come to them with something that is orchestrated by the DA. It's just bad politics. It's not going to work. You're not going to get the kind of acceptability uh, that you are that you are looking for. So that's the that's the first reason. The second reason is that you also then have very clear brand differentiation because when you go to people you've got to set out a political case you've got to say uh, what your ideological position is broadly speaking and not in a sort of wonkish way but generally the values and the things that you believe in and that distinction is really important when you from the onset are part of a crowded room nobody's gonna see you and so we've decided to stay away from it yeah and and after the election, let's assume that let's well two cases to you. After the election, the ANC has uh, forecast or predicted or by um, a second poll due to come out soon from the Social Research Foundation gets forty five percent, and you get five percent, and they invite you to come and in, into government with them. What is what do you tell, what do you say to the ANC? Firstly, Peter, they're unlikely to do it, but in the event that they they were to do it. It it it's much less likely that we would say yes to them than we would to the alternative, which is uh, the opposition parties. And the reason is simple. We believe that South Africa needs a break from the ANC. And the last chance the whole country has is, is 2024. Another five years of the ANC, either by itself or with another political party, will spell disaster for the country. The, the problems besetting the ANC have now become all of our problems. Let's assume, though, that... Um, let's see, what does that disaster look like? I mean, because if they are in government on their own yet again, which is, you know, not un- not unlikely, um, certainly not impossible, um, what does that disaster look like? What happens if, you know, what, what does South Africa look like in 2027 if the ANC is still in government? You know, the, you know, the biggest political problem the ANC has or the biggest governing problem the ANC has is, is not having the right people to 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 turn the country around because yeah. it has lost credibility. So it is not able to attract the top talent it could attract in the 90s and early 2000s. I'm sure you and I, both of us, know some really fine people that used to work in government that are yeah. highly capable, that were in the ANC and so on. And those people want nothing to do with it. In order to pull that talent back into public life, you need a new government that has got integrity, whose outlook is fresh, 
And that has significant credibility with many key stakeholders in South African society. Those people will coalesce around that government and make sure that it succeeds. But it's interesting, it's interesting Songhez, isn't it? Because the people that we n- know or knew uh, who were in government are probably now no longer available to join a new government. I mean, you would have to repopulate government with younger people, um, uh, professionals, whatever uh, they may be. Um, but there's not a class of, you know, there's not a class of public officials in waiting out there. You got to, you would have to find them. Yes, no, Peter, that's that's true. But we also don't need to go back to those same people. We mm. we actually need to look to new blood. I mm. think what the opportunity we have is we have the benefit of people with very deep uh, public sector experience. They may be older, but many of them have said to me and to some of my colleagues that if we were to be in government, they would certainly be be very prepared to help in whatever way they can. And that's what you need. You need that goodwill, that experience to guide new blood. South Africa in the 90s, Peter, was turned around by new people who had not been in government before. And and you need that. I I think of my former boss at um, at APSA, Maria Ramos. She was 36 years Deputy Director General of the National Treasury. She hadn't been there long, but she did a fantastic job, and as did her successors, one of whom is now the Reserve Bank Governor. And yeah. we need that injection of new energy. Yeah. The, the, so, the, um, um, in, terms of po- in terms of policy, just so that people understand where you are in this, on the spectrum, how would you describe your approach to, say, turning the economy around? What would you, what would you do? You know, do you do you put the state at the center of everything the way the ANC is trying to do, or do you get it out of the way? Um, what's the mix? So, so Peter, I put it at the center of, of a lot of things. You, you know why? Because it is the state that is dysfunctional. It is holding the economy back. So I believe that in order for the state to play the kind of role, which is a facilitating role in the economy, we need to fix it. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you can't sort out municipalities, which are completely dysfunctional, mm. those businesses situated in each of those municipalities are simply not never going to do as well as, as, as they should. If we cannot sort out crime, we're going to have a problem. If we can't sort out proper and, and targeted skills training in the country, we're not going to sort out the economy and so on. So that's what I mean, Peter, by placing the state at the center of attention of our efforts, not as the fundamental driver of the change in the way that the ANC and and, and communists uh, do, but our state has become the biggest obstacle that we have. And and you see that in business people going into the government to try and fix it. So that's the most important thing I think one needs to do, Peter. The second thing is that there is a lot of money, uh, private sector money, especially pension funds, Peter, that is waiting to be unleashed into the economy. The only reason it's not is the first thing that I mentioned, the dysfunctionality of the state. The second thing is the ideological orientation of the ANC. It prefers to borrow from pension funds rather than turn them into an investor in the economy. And I think that's silly. It's it's costly financially, and it's outmoded. So just explain to me what you think of the efforts by Sir Ramaphosa, President Sir Ramaphosa, to introduce reforms. You know, so 
um, electricity is now going to be, um, you know, we'll have a central buyer, but private uh, sector players will be able to contribute to the uh, supply of power in uh, in the in in freight and logistics. He's trying to get private sector involvement in Transnet, which is in terrible state. We know. Um, is he is he even remotely on the right track with some of these reforms? Do you think? Reluctantly, I think reluctantly with some of them he is, but there's not an insight. So this proposal about breaking up ESCOM into three into three separate entities, including a central buying entity. I was involved in that process, uh, Peter, in 2010. This is 13 years later, it still hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. So you see what I mean, Peter, is you need to be bold and say as a country, we are choosing not to indebt ourselves, we are going to turn the national savings uh, that we have in the form of pension funds into part owners of our national economic infrastructure. Because those pension funds belong to the workers of this country anyway, many of whom are black. And therefore, it actually is the right thing to do to part privatize many of these entities and to do away with uh, with others as well. This is so stupid, Peter, that people can't see the similarity between the N2 and the railway system. The government mm-hmm. doesn't own the trucks that run on the N2 or the N1 or whatever. It owns the road. But when it comes to rail, it doesn't want to do exactly the same thing. Why should the government buy any locomotives at all? <laughs> when yeah. you've got so much uh, capital trapped in the country that could buy and run those uh, locomotives. Yeah. So, Ngeza, and has your party um, developed an a an alternative or a position on 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 health reform, on the national health insurance, on that issue? No, not not specifically on that, Peter. Uh, and there is a reason for that, and that is we, you know, we taking a novel approach to policy development, which is firstly we need to make sure the basics are in place always uh, because that that's important, and the second thing is that you need a range of measures to to produce a set of outcomes. For instance, the NHI does not help you with stunting and other problems. Twenty seven percent of kids in the Eastern Cape suffer from. Mm-hmm. Right, the NHI doesn't help somebody from Ganduli, where I'm from, access uh, top top notch medical care because they have to travel 250 kilometers to East London. Is there are parts of geographically parts of South Africa that can benefit from it, but almost half the population will see very little or no difference in their lives, and and for that reason, it's suboptimal. Yeah. So, as I said, the election, whenever it is, I mean, I hear that there's some concern that it might not be as early as people had hoped in May next year, that it might be pushed out into colder months like August. But after the election, of course, the first thing that Parliament does is meet and elect a president. Um, yes. And what? just try and talk me through what Rizam Zansi's approach to that will be. You've already indicated that, you know, you're, you, you're unlikely to be a ready partner for the ANC. We need a period without the ANC. How does that how does that period after the election play out, do you think? So so the first thing that we'll we'll look for, Peter, is an opportunity to change away from the ANC. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that is where the, the discussions with uh, with other political parties, such as the Democratic Alliance and others, become particularly important uh, at the time to see if we cannot 
arrive at an agreement around the speaker. The speakership is really important, by the way. Yes. The speakership, how parliament functions, how the rules in parliament work, the committees and that sort of thing, one. And and secondly, the the presidency um, of uh, of South Africa. And we would certainly look to to support a candidate who would be able to to unite South Africans behind mm. a common vision and to understand the importance of personal leadership in, in politics. Let's just talk about that person then. I mean, I think it's generally agreed that the person is going to have to be a black person. That you know, John Steen has is not going to be the next president of South Africa. Um, but which black person becomes important because there are people who argue that you know what we should be doing now before the election is deciding who the presidential candidate would be of any be it the be it the uh, we know that in a Ramaphosa will lead the ANC but the the multi-party charter should you know be able to put a, a face to its name and it hasn't yet and I wonder whether it's taking too long I mean are you are you relaxed about that sort of thing or you know, can it can it wait until after the election, or would it change? You know, if we had a presidential election or presidential style election, would the outcome be different? Um, you know, if it were not just you know the parties having a go at each other once again for three months and then you know deciding afterwards what to do. Peter, I mean, we we feel a little relaxed, but the first thing I'm going to say is that because. A, you know, we we're doing this. We formed a political party, and we're going to contest all the all all the elections. I mean, I I am prepared to step into such a role, for instance. And by yeah. definition, I think the people in the other political parties are, are prepared to to do that as well. Uh, to be honest with you, Peter, I I struggle with the concept of a presidential candidate for a coalition of political parties ahead of an election. Because people, unfortunately, our system doesn't allow a presidential vote. You still vote for a political party. So what happens now if the person that you really like, who would uh, otherwise be, you know, um, would be a good presidential candidate, let us say, for instance, is with the ACDP, and Mm -hmm. you fundamentally disagree with the position that the ACDP takes, it is a clunky sort of meanderous way of uh, of engaging in politics. And, and I think we should let the South African people trust them enough to choose what combination of parties get, uh, you know, over 50% to govern the country. And we apply ourselves to the choices that are available then. Are you content then to spend the next, you know, one or two election cycles in the opposition benches, objecting to this, objecting to that, um, it's um, it's a bleak place to be, you know. If if uh, if you don't have any clout, if you don't have any power, it's a bleak place, Peter. But it's worth doing. So our big objective as Rising Suns is two thousand and twenty nine. So we're in it mm. for for the for the long game. We yeah. set out from the onset to 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 govern outright in twenty twenty nine, and that meant we understand that in uh, in 2024 there is a more than 50 percent chance that would be in the opposition benches and that's fine (laughs) you need the legislative and governing experience Uh, so that uh, when the opportunity comes to to govern in the next election you're perfectly able to change the whole system because you've experienced it 
Yeah. What do you say to to people who are funding political parties? I mean, what should they do with their money? You know, there's. I'm sure you're aware there's this uh, effort at the moment um, between some wealthy funders to find a candidate. Um, the name I most hear most often is Roger Jardine, the former Prime Media and Avenge CEO, and I think he's just resigned as chairman of First Rand uh, in order to prepare himself for a life in politics. Um, and the numbers behind him are truly staggering. If you listen, you know, you get some of them. I mean, billions of rands would go in to his candidacy, but presumably his candidacy has to be embraced by by the parties that um, empower him as an individual candidate, unless people come to his party. Um, what do you What do you think of the of the Jardine scenario? The, the you know the the, the, the candidate who, who gets parachuted in to save us all. You know, I I think that I mean my message is is that the desire to micromanage the outcome, uh, to determine the outcome too specifically is is not a good thing, because it is likely to fail, and and that investment would have gone uh, to to something that does not produce the desired outcome. I really understand the need for a for a skilled. Uh, experienced presidential candidate. Unfortunately, though, leadership uh, at that level is not just about technocracy. You also need to be relatable. People need to know and like you, <laughs> for instance, yeah. politically, because that's what gives you the halo that you that you use to to govern. You you need yeah. to be able to um, to be relatable in many other ways. I mean, South Africa in many ways is still a multi ethnic society uh, yeah. with many racial and other preferences. So. My thing would be the entry of somebody of Roger's quality into politics is a good thing. And I think we should encourage it. And there are not enough people of Roger's caliber who are doing it. And I would love for more people to do it. What we need to be careful about is engineering the outcome too much because it's likely to cost it credibility, especially that the people who generally fund political parties are white. And yeah. people get very suspicious of a scheme uh, that appears to, you know, uh, be yeah. cooked up some way. Even though yeah. I know uh, many of those people are doing it from an extremely good place that nobody else is is willing yeah. to put their For money sure. behind. Yeah. For sure. Let me throw just two quick final issues at you. Um, so there's a fiscal crisis, right? The Treasury is asking the public sector to cut back sharply. On public spending, I use public sector in the wider sense, government and state-owned companies. The cabinet and the ANC have resisted and prefer the answer from left-wing economists, which is to plow on spending regardless. What would you do? No, Peter, by the way, we don't have a fiscal crisis yet. We only have it because the ANC is in charge and they're going to vacillate. <laughs> and their biggest problem is vacillation, by the way. Yes. You know, Peter, uh, if when you get a chance, speak to Pakamani Hadeb, a yeah. former ESCOM chief executive. He's the yeah. guy who led the fixing of South Africa's finance finances post-apartheid. Okay. And, and basically, the decisions we need to take, I made an example about it before. Do we choose to borrow more or do we choose to take the money that we currently borrow and turn it into investment? That's yeah. the first thing that you do because you relieve the pressure on the government. The second is we actually need to cut the SOCs of which they are about 800 by more than half. 
because they waste money, they are sins of corruption and so on, and only be left with a few that are really critical to to, to the economy, that, that there's about 30% of our budget, which is going to bad political decision-making, which means you need a new a new government yeah. to just stop the white elephants that the ANC is obsessed with, investing yeah. in things that you've got real economic return. And you can do that without austerity in the way it's likely to happen uh, because of the ANC's vacillation. Yeah. And the final issue then would be sort of our foreign policy is Ukraine, but now particularly Israel and Gaza, SA, um, we cut our diplomatic ties. We pulled our ambassador out of Israel about five years ago now, I think. But we now suddenly want to play a role in resolving this crisis in the Middle East or the Palestinian crisis. How do you how do you rate our diplomacy um, in the current violence so far and our diplomacy with regards to Ukraine as well? No, but I think generally our foreign, uh, our international relations or foreign policy capacity over the years has declined precipitously. In fact, the first interview I ever did for the Financial Mail uh, when uh, when you recruited me there, Peter, was with Minister Maidengwana Mashabani. I, I, I nearly fell off my chair. I couldn't believe it. I was gobsmacked. I couldn't believe how bad she was. And I think the erosion that happened in that time has still has still not changed. And And you see that in a failure to answer the perennial question in diplomacy or foreign policy, you're going to do this and then what? <laughs> right? Yeah. They never answer the what's next question. And I think that's a fundamental problem that we have. So that is that is the first thing. The second and last thing, Peter, with regards to both Ukraine and um, and, uh, and and the conflict in, in Palestine, I mean, the first one is a lot easier in the sense that it doesn't have the historical middle in than it is with the, with the Israeli-Palestinian problem. Yeah. I think the shock of so many Israelis uh, getting murdered by, by Hamas, uh, you know, uh, about a month ago, it's going to be now, uh, has been so much that I fear that nobody in the world is listening to themselves speak. And and in the process, I think a lot more people have lost their their ability to, to perceive humanity in the manner in which they should. And we're all talking past each other. And, and you know, people uh, are suffering both in Palestine and in the border areas of Israel. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm sure I couldn't agree with you more. So, Geza, thank you so much. That's all we've got time for. And I really appreciate you joining me.